And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In a very polarized country, in a very polarized Washington, in a very polarized United States Senate, uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine stands out as someone who has consistently over the years been able to forge uh, alliances across party lines. And uh, she's done it again recently in uh, trying to fashion a compromise uh, on the issue of guns and whether to ban people who are on the no-fly list for terrorism uh, from purchasing guns. I sat down in Washington with Senator Collins to talk about that, her career, and the interesting state of the 2016 campaign. Susan Collins, welcome. I, I, you know, getting ready for these podcasts, I try and do a little research, and I started reading up on Caribou, Maine, which is where you're from. And I guess your family was from for many, many generations. How far back do your ties to Caribou go? Well, my family actually were among the first white settlers of caribou in the 1840s. So we go back to the very beginning of the community. I'm sure there were Native Americans there as well. But as far as white settlers, we were among the first. And you're close to, how far from Canada are you up there? Very, very close. If you go in one direction, it's only a 20-minute ride. If you go another, it's an hour ride. Uh, so I grew up in a community that had a very strong uh, Franco-American, French-Canadian influence. And when I was growing up, the big cities for us were in Canada. I had been to Quebec before I'd ever been to Boston. Really? And, and, um, but the community itself was small. Yes. When I was growing up, it, it was about 10,000 people. Unfortunately, with the 1994 closure of a major Air Force base, it has shrunk considerably. Uh, that was a devastating blow to the area because it took the largest and the most diverse community out of the Aroostook County. Um, a lot of the people I talk to have their own sort of stories about how they found their way to politics. But you were sort of born with it, right? Not one, but both your parents were mayors of Caribou? That's correct. And I grew up in a household where I was taught that you should get involved and that your voice would be heard and that you had no right to complain if you stayed on the sidelines. Both my parents were very active in the community and in the state. Your dad was a state senator. Right? He was, and indeed four generations on my father's side have represented uh, Caribou in the Maine legislature. My mother was head of the school board when I was a senior in high school. In fact, I remember she signed my high school diploma 
Oklahoma. And she ultimately became the chair of the University of Maine System Board of Trustees, a position that my younger brother holds today. So I come from a family with a strong tradition of public service. And did you always know that you were going to, I know you were, I read you were class president when you were in high school. You, I was student council president. Yeah. That wasn't by uh, ordinance of the head of the school board, right? Your mother didn't just kiss <laughs> you. Not at all. I, I'm from Chicago, so I have to ask these kinds of questions. You know? uh, Caribou could not be more different from Chicago, though both are great places. <laughs> and they both start with C. That's true. Yes. Um, but no, I had to run just like everyone else. <laughs> and of course, when you're a teenager, you think you're not supposed to vote for yourself. And so I don't even recall whether I voted for myself, but I won. And uh, I was very active in in school organizations, but in response to your question, I never, ever thought that I would end up as a United States senator, even though I was interested in public service and had several pivotal uh, experiences in my life that directed me in that that but, way. But when you were a kid, you when you were, I guess when you were student council president, you came down here... And you met a a woman who was a United States senator from Maine, uh, Margaret Chase Smith. Uh, what, what? Tell me about that experience. When I was a senior at Caribou High School, I was one of two students who was chosen from the state of Maine to participate in the William Randolph Hearst Foundation Senate Youth Program, which still exists to this very day. And I had never been on an airplane. I'd never been to Washington, D.C., and I'd certainly never met a United States senator. Well, Maine had extraordinary senators. Margaret J. Smith, the legendary senator from Maine, who was the first woman elected to the House and the Senate in her own right, and Edmund Muskie. So I knew I had the best senators of (laughs) any of the delegates to this conference. Margaret J. Smith, for reasons that I will never understand, was so kind to me. She spent nearly two hours talking to me. She never once talked about what it was like to be the only woman in the Senate. She instead talked about her work on the Armed Services Committee, her famous Declaration of Conscience, issues like full employment, which was a big issue back then. And she was just wonderful to me. I remember leaving her office, clutching her declaration of conscience in my hand, and thinking that women could do anything. And although that's obvious to young girls and young women today, this was back in 1971. And we weren't quite sure about that in 1971. Well, witnessed by the fact that she was the only woman in the Senate. Exactly. She also was the first woman to have her name entered into nomination for president. That's right. And in 1964, when Barry Goldwater was nominated. It was exhilarating for me to meet her. And although I didn't know it at the time, in retrospect, I do believe that that was my first step in my journey to the Senate. And 25 years later, I ran for a seat that she once held that was held by my mentor, Bill Cohen. And today, I sit at Margaret J. Smith's desk on the Senate floor. Did you keep up with her when you uh, 
Uh, I know she she passed away at the age of 97, I guess, but she was around for quite a while after she left. So did you talk to her from time to time? I went to see her when I ran for governor unsuccessfully in 1994. And I went to see her at her home and library in Scowahegan, Maine. I also have some letters from her that date back to the 1970s uh, that are framed and in my office. And um, my mother just gave me two additional letters that when she was cleaning through some files. But there was a period of years where I did not have contact this, with her. Uh, this, this is so interesting to me, This these experiences that you don't realize at the time. You know, when I was a 10, I came down here for uh, the inauguration of Lyndon Johnson. A friend of mine was active on the Democratic side and um, brought us down, and she was friendly with um, with Abe Ribicoff, the senator from Connecticut, and we went over to see him, and I stood in his office. It may well have been in this building, and he said, uh, hey, maybe someday you'll be working in one of these offices. I thought, wow, that was that would be, that'd be really exciting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I don't know if kids, I, I hope kids still have that. I, know, I make it a point to speak to every group of students who come down here, and I've visited a, more than 200 schools in the state of Maine, and I do so for that very reason. Now, I want them to see that a young girl who was born and grew up in a small community in northern Maine can grow up to be a United States senator. And I also tell them about the disappointments and obstacles on the way, because I want them to know that it, it's not easy, but that you should pursue your dream, whatever that may be. You, uh, uh, how many women were in the Senate when you got elected in, in, in uh, 90, was it 96? Yes. Um, there were nine of us. Mary Landrew and I were both elected that year. And I'll never forget Barbara Mikulski taking both of us under her wing and giving us a workshop on how to be effective in the appropriations process. And she said to me about a year after that, you have the kind of personality that would be really good on appropriations. So try to get there someday. And now I she am She sized you up, huh? She did. And she's been wonderful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Leaving the Senate this year. And I'm very sad about that. You know, it's, uh, she's on the Democratic side. Um, and it raises this question. You, you work for Bill Cohen, you mentioned, who was a Republican senator. I covered, when I was a reporter, the presidential campaigns of Gary Hart. And uh, or I guess one campaign, and then I was out of journalism for the next one, and I was an operative at the time. But Gary Hart was very close to Bill Cohen. In fact, they wrote books together, and uh, um, they they clearly shared some views on on particularly national defense issues. Um, those kind of relationships are harder to find uh, today. Talk a little bit about how the Senate was when you first were here as a young staffer, as a young senator, and the way it is today? When I first worked for Bill Cohen, both in the House side, then on his successful Senate campaign, and then most of the years in the Senate, the 
Congress was a less partisan place. I remember Bill working with Congressman Claude Pepper on issues affecting seniors when he was in the House. And when he came to the Senate, one of the Democrats, in addition to Gary Hart, whom he worked most closely with, was Carl Levin. Mm -hmm. Ironically, when I took over the seat that Bill had held, Carl Levin was my ranking member on the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Oh, on Investigations. I see. Um, But... Uh, I'm getting to something deeper here, which is what has been lost. Bill Cohen actually left the Congress to become defense secretary under Bill Clinton. Um, What has been lost uh, in the politics of the Senate, in the ability for the Senate uh, to function? The best example I can give you is the kind of personal relationships that Ted Kennedy had with many of us on the other side of the aisle. I remember Ted and I vigorously debating on opposite sides of an issue, and his coming over after the debate ended, clapping me on the back and saying, uh, I'm really not sure that everything I said was exactly (laughs) right, but we had a whale of a debate, didn't we? (laughs) And he was always warm and generous. I remember his giving me a book written by his mother for my mother because they had Irish heritages in common. And uh, that kind of friendship that can transcend the at times brutal political debates are rarer today, but they do still exist. I think that there is an impression in the country that nothing ever gets done in Washington and that all we do is fight, when in fact last year, for example, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray teamed up to do a rewrite of a major education law, No No Child Left Behind, and President Obama signed it into law. So the the feeling of working together toward a common cause is not there as much as it was, and certainly the Senate is a more polarized and more politicized place, but those cross-the-aisle friendships and accomplishments still do exist. Well, the country's more polarized. You know, I just saw this poll, I was reading about this poll yesterday from Pew, um, where uh, it's the, the lead of the story on this is nearly half of Republicans regard Democrats as more immoral, lazy, and dishonest than other Americans, and seven in ten Democrats view Republicans as more closed-minded. On both sides, majorities now express very unfavorable views of the other party, up from about one in four in 2000. And the thing goes on and on in that spirit. So in a sense, the Senate is reflecting, I don't know whether one is feeding the other, maybe a sort of a negative feeding loop, but but there is political peril. You know, you're someone who is seen as a compromiser, someone who brings people together. That's your, been your history in the Senate. But there are political perils associated with that. Maybe not for you. You seem impervious in your state. But many members uh, fear being seen as too accommodating, too willing to compromise. 
Uh, how, do, how do we overcome that? The center needs to rise up in this country and make its voice heard. I think the problem is in both parties, the activists from the far left and the activists from the far right tend to dominate primaries. So when a sitting member is challenged in a primary, it's almost always going to be from someone who is from the more extreme part of the party. And uh, that is a peril for our country. I want to go back to a very interesting point that you made, and that is that the polarization in parties and Congress reflects society at large. I firmly believe that is true. If you look at demographic patterns and where people live, you will see changes such that Democrats are living in cities and more urban areas with other Democrats. They may not even know Republicans, much less have them as friends or interact with them. Rural America has become more conservative and more Republican. When you were growing up in Caribou, were there Democrats and Republicans? Yes, and there still are. Maine is an interesting state in that there are more independent voters than anything else. Republicans actually rank third in registration in Maine. But what Mainers share, and I'm thankful for this, is they want to send people to Washington to get things done and who are pragmatic and less ideological. Well, in fact, your uh, counterpart, your your fellow senator from Maine, was the governor you who defeated you Correct. in 1994, Angus King. How, how do you guys get along here? Really, really well. Uh, in fact, Angus endorsed me in 2014 when I ran for re-election. We have a true partnership. And I use this as a story when I'm speaking to young people, that your opponent one day may be your ally the next. And it's an important lesson that we need to learn. He, um, he We should point out caucuses with the Democratic caucus. So uh, he's an independent and elected as an independent, but in effect, organizes on the Democratic side. So there is an element of, of bipartisanship in that, uh, in that relationship. How about your relationship with uh, your, the rest of your caucus? I remember when I, was, uh, when I was working for President Obama and we needed to pass the Recovery Act because the economy was literally in a free fall. There were only a handful of Republicans, not less than a handful, three Republicans willing to uh, uh, vote for that. And we needed those votes in order to pass the Recovery Act. Two of them came from the state of Maine, you and Olympia Snow, who's since uh, retired. One of them is, was Arlen Specter, who wound up switching parties. Uh, how much heat did you take at that time from your colleagues for sort of breaking ranks? Well, first let me say that I have a good personal relationship with my colleagues, and I agree uh, with the Republican position most of the time, but not all of the time. This was a case when our economy was in a deep recession, and I did believe that we needed the Recovery Act to get us out of it. I thought the president's initial proposal was too high, and 
too expensive, and I worked very hard with the administration and with my colleagues to bring down the number. What people have forgotten about the Recovery Act, and I really must say I think that President Obama did not do a good job in selling the benefits of the act, is that... Well, I was, the communi- I was sort of the communications guy there, so uh-oh. you're speaking to the responsible party here. <laughs> well, I, I He'd apologize. probably agree with you. <laughs> I apologize. No, not at all. uh, But what was lost was the amount of the Recovery Act that went to tax reductions for middle-income families in this country, and that got totally lost. I think think that he mentioned it once once or twice. It didn't penetrate. Yeah. No, I I think that that, there's no doubt that that was. That was, of course, a source of consternation to some who thought more should go into uh, other things. But yes, that was a big piece of it, uh, uh, was middle-class tax relief. Uh, I'm just going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Senator Susan Collins. Back with uh, Senator Susan Collins. One of the colleagues who you had a good relationship with here from at least from what I could see, uh, was Hillary Clinton. Uh, and you worked with her on legislation, and, I, and, and uh, you were personally close. I think I read somewhere that she had a shower for you or something when you, uh, when you were getting married. Um, talk to me. Not, I understand you're a, Dem- you're a Republican, she's a Democrat, and you have differences on issues. But um, you know, campaigns tend to um, present distorted pictures of people. Tell me about her as a colleague. What, what, what observations do you have of her as a person? When Hillary was elected to the Senate, she made a real effort to reach out to members on the other side of the aisle, not just moderates like me, but conservatives as well. And she would come to our office, identify areas where we could work together. We were the initial co-chairs of the Alzheimer's Task Force, which I founded. And she was good to work with. I had a very good relationship with her in the Senate, working on Alzheimer's in particular, but also on some economic development issues. Both of us were interested she in upstate New York. Exactly. Yes. was mm-hmm. very much where I went to school is very much like Northern Maine. And we talked about cluster development. You went to St. Lawrence University? Yeah. I did. And so... We both had a common interest in that area as well. And I worked with her when she was Secretary of State on the issuing, uh, issue of trying to empower Afghan girls and women and a real passion uh, for both of us. So what's she like? She's very well prepared on policy issues and uh, – she was diligent. She was not a show horse. She did the work. She came to hearings. And even though she was very down in seniority, um, she she did the work. Do you think um, not being a show horse 
is a liability when you're running for president of the United States. Do you think that's an, an uncomfortable role for her based on your exposure to her? You know, you don't I, usually, you, this is like a job application. You have to go out and perform. She herself has said that she is not a natural campaigner. Uh, I like campaigning. I like getting on my bus and doing a tour of little towns in Maine. And I have infinite curiosity in going through plants where they're making things. I think I'm a frustrated engineer at heart. And I love She probably does too. She, but you don't have 600 reporters or whatever following you to wherever you go. That's true, although we usually had a reporter on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I clearly don't attract the hordes that, uh, <laughs> that Hillary does. And, you know, it's... It's very difficult for any presidential candidate being out there day after day after day and worried that one mistake could cause you to decline. Or um, it, Now, this has been, this year in many ways has been an exception to that rule because it's been the most unpredictable and unusual campaign year that I've seen. But generally, when you're out campaigning, whether it's for the Senate or for president, you're a little bit on guard because you know that any mistake you make yes. will be blown way out of proportion. And you think, and you see that in her. I think she's guarded, and I understand why. Mm-hmm. So I guess my my question is not as a political matter, but as a personal matter and not evaluating her as a public official, but what are your observations of her as a person? Because people don't really, they see that what they see. They don't see what you saw. They don't see her as someone who, who, with whom you work day to day, who was plainly a friend. What, what do you, uh, what do you, what, what are her personal qualities? Well, I don't is want she guarded and is she, you know, my experience with her has been that she's not, not, guarded in her personal interactions with people that she's garrulous and friendly and funny. But I, you know, but I don't know what your experience was. Well, I don't mean to overstate how well I know Hillary Clinton because I, I don't know her well. Um, I know her as a professional colleague, and I know her through the dinners that the women in the Senate have periodically together, and she often participated in those dinners. And in those dinners, it's a more relaxed environment because we have three rules, no press, no staff, and no memos. So, um, And nobody's ever broken those rules. And so I've seen her in a more relaxed environment, but she is... N- she is understandably on guard, I think, most of the time. I don't know how she is with her closest friends. I'm not in that category. You, a last question on her is um, uh, her opponent, and I know that you were uh, clear that you're tired of talking about her opponent, uh, and we won't talk too much about him, but I'd be remiss if I didn't raise it. But he's called her crooked Hillary and said she's the most dishonest person to run for president. Is that a what? What's your reaction to? I don't like that Donald Trump calls anyone names. I think that that is unpresidential and um, not worthy of the kind of public 
discourse that we should have. And I have been critical of him uh, for criticizing Hillary Clinton for, quote, playing the woman's card. I think that demeans her accomplishments. And as as a woman, uh, I'm particularly concerned when someone demeans the accomplishments of a person who has done a lot in her life, even if I don't agree with that person. And, and I should make clear that Hillary and I have very different philosophies when it comes to the role of government, mm-hmm. and uh, we disagree on, on some major issues. But that doesn't mean that I didn't work well with her when she was in the Senate. I did. And you respect her? I do. What, uh, you met, uh, you talked about Margaret Chase Smith and her famous declaration uh, of conscience, uh, and we should, for those who don't remember, uh, she was one of the first who stood up and challenged McCarthyism and did so on the Senate floor in terms that were uh, uh, were very, very resonant. Uh, I think uh, she said uh, that... Um, uh, she talked about the politics of fear and ignorance and bigotry and smear. Um, when you hear uh, Donald Trump, does that do, do those words resonate at all with you? Of your 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 former your forerunner in the Senate. Well, first, let me say that I think the more appropriate historical analogy with Margaret J. Smith, because it was a presidential race that you've referred to in 1964, was with Barry Goldwater. Uh, She was less than enamored uh, with the fact that Barry Goldwater was the Republican candidate. Um, She did not campaign for him, and she said she voted for him, but she definitely was not enthusiastic about the choice, and I think that is the more appropriate historical parallel. Having said that, I spoke out six months ago when uh, when Donald Trump called for a ban on Muslims coming to this country. I pointed out that we have some very brave Muslim, Iraqi, and Afghan translators who saved the lives of American troops. Are we not going to allow them? Not to mention Muslim troops. Absolutely. We have Muslim Americans who are as patriotic as anybody, and I believe 9,000 of them are serving in our armed forces. So I felt that his comments would not only alienate uh, countries like Jordan, whose help we need in fighting Islamic extremism. And I don't understand why the president will not say that phrase, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we need the help of countries like Jordan, but also we don't want to cast a shadow over the millions of patriotic Muslim Americans in this country. Um, just on a side on the president and, and, you know, his argument is that, that, um, it tarnishes, uh, it tarnishes Islam and, and the broader faith, uh, by using that phrase. But, uh, and let's stipulate that you don't agree. And a lot, and there are many people who don't, you know, I think there's a pretty good argument as to why, uh, why it's a valid, uh, phrase, but 
Do you think it would make any difference, really, in the fight against uh, uh, terrorism uh, if he were to use that phrase? You know, one of my closest friends in the Senate was Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. And I realize he's probably not your favorite No, I like Joe. I, yeah, I, I knew him well. I mean, we didn't agree on a, a lot of things, including his choice of candidates in, 19, in, 19, in 2008. But, you know, I admired other elements of what he did. My point is that he and I um, were chair or ranking member of the Homeland Security Committee for 10 years. And we wrote in the wake of 9-11, the Terrorism Prevention and Intelligence Reform Act of, of 2004. And we actually had a hearing on the issue. It wasn't solely on this issue, but we heard from New York City police, we heard from terrorism experts, and one of the frustrations we had is no one was in charge of counter-messaging within the administration to reach out to the Muslim community in this country, get them involved in helping us to counter the extremist perversion of a great religion. And we, I'll never forget one expert saying to us, if you won't name the threat, you can't effectively counter the threat. And that's why I think it does matter. Now, Trump doubled down after the Orlando shootings on the Muslim uh, Muslim ban. Um, do you, uh, did that, did that further add to your concerns? It absolutely did, but he also apparently this last weekend in Scotland on the golf course, yeah, has yeah. Uh, delimited it. Yes, he's apparently limited it to certain countries, and he. So I'm unclear where he stands, but it is clearly poor policy and contrary to our American values. Are you going to Cleveland for the convention? I am. And uh, do you anticipate speaking there? I do not. And why not? Have you spoken at all the other conventions? I've never spoken at a convention, okay, so, so it would be very unusual for me to be asked to be speaking. Uh -huh. Are you? Um, and and do you see yourself at the end of the day uh, supporting uh, Trump for president? You know, this has been the most unusual political year. <laughs> I think that's since a fair statement, Senator. <laughs> since I've been in politics, and. I was a very early supporter of Jeb Bush. I campaigned twice for him with spectacular <laughs> lack of success in New Hampshire. And I still believe— I haven't heard anybody blame you for that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to hear yes. that. But I still believe that he was the best qualified of all the candidates to be our next president by experience and temperament. Um, Donald Trump was not my second choice. He was not my third choice. But— the Republican voters did choose him. There were 17 candidates. Where would he rank among them? I didn't rank beyond third. <laughs> but I decided that what I would do is not make another endorsement. Um, I want to just look and see what happens. This evolves daily. There are are surprises daily. And I'm going to see what happens at the convention. It's going to be very important to me whom uh, Donald Trump chooses as his running mate. And that is 
arguably the most important decision that a candidate it's can the make. the first presidential decision. Correct. It's the first presidential appointment. And I'll be very interested to see who Hillary chooses. Will you um, – uh, is it possible that you might just not make an endorsement in this race? Yes. Um, let's talk about – I mentioned Orlando. You were very active after those shootings, uh, that, that shooting, that horrible massacre down there to try and find some middle ground on uh, changing gun laws in such a way as to keep uh, terrorists on the no-fly list from being able to uh, buy guns. And you got a majority for that in the Senate, and you forged a bipartisan group uh, to support it, including Senator Kane and and others. Um, But you didn't get the 60 votes you need to uh, break a, a, a filibuster. Talk about what motivated you to do that and what the status of it is now? In my judgment, it should be obvious that an individual who is too dangerous to board an airplane is too dangerous to buy a gun. So what I did is I focused on the no-fly list of known and suspected terrorists who are believed to have the capability to launch an attack in this country or overseas, and what's called the selectee list, the second list that is drawn from the terrorist database that includes people who need extra intensive screening before they're allowed to board a plane. Those combined lists are about 109,000 individuals, of whom 2,700 are Americans. That That is very different from the original Democratic proposal, which has 1.1 million people on the list. Again, the vast majority are foreigners, but it's— That's a, a larger uh, that's, watch list. That's what's called the terrorist screening database, and it has— derogatory information about individuals that is not verified, not investigated, not corroborated. So in my view, it was not right to use that larger list because it hasn't been winnowed down. So I thought a good compromise would be focused on the list where there is credible information. That's the standard that these individuals belong on these lists. We also gave robust appeals process in case... Because that's been the argument that there's no due process if you're on that list. Right. So what we said is is if you're denied a purchase, you can go to your local district court and if you prevail, the burden is on the government to prove why you should not be on the list and denied a purchase of a firearm. And if you prevail, the government pays your attorney's fees. We also included in direct response to the perpetrator of the massacre in Orlando a five-year look back so that if you were on the broader terrorist screening database and you bought a firearm – the FBI is immediately notified. I believe that would have caused the FBI to reopen its investigation of Omar Mateen, and perhaps it would have prevented, who knows, but perhaps it would have prevented the terrorist attack in Florida. One of the, uh, one of the arguments that uh, some of the Democrats made uh, about your – not necessarily against your bill, but about your bill was that when you have uh, – 
so many uh, points of entry for purchases of gun gun shows, the internet, and so on that no that don't qualify for uh, background checks. That it's a porous, uh, it's still a porous system. Is that not true? I supported the Manchin Toomey compromise on background checks that we considered a year or two ago. I thought it was well-drafted, it excluded family transactions, and it would have closed the so-called gun show loophole and applied to private sales among non-family members. And I do think that's part of the answer as well. But keep in mind that that we'd already... Understood. Let me ask you a question. Uh, like 90% of Americans uh, support that approach. Vast majorities of Americans support your approach, um, and yet you can't muster 60 votes in the United States Senate for it. I, perhaps the answer is obvious, but, but why? There are many people in my caucus who have been very concerned that this is a constitutional right and that you need to build in even more due process. And it's possible we'll come up with some sort yeah, of but compromise. Senator, you're, 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 that's artful. But what about the political pressures of the, the NRA, the gun lobby, and the fact that there are people on that side of the debate who are highly motivated uh, in elections, whereas there are people on the other side of the debate who care deeply about it but aren't necessarily going to vote only on that issue. Well, first of all, I represent a state that has one of the highest gun ownerships in the country, and I'm finding that my constituents, whether they're NRA members, of which we have many or not, believe that what I've put forth is common sense. So I think there may be a disconnect between the leaders of the NRA in opposing my amendment and um, some of their membership. Then but, why are people so frightened about it? Well, I'm not sure they are. I don't think that's that's quite fair. I think that, first of all, we got a record high number of Republicans signing on. Now, I realize it wasn't many. How many were there? Eight. But we've, there has never Out been— Out of 54. There is, that is the highest number that there has ever been. So I'm still working uh, with members, and the House counterpart was introduced by a Republican, I would note, from Florida, and it's bipartisan. So maybe we haven't seen the last chapter of this. What do you, what do you, how do you rate the chances? Well, it's going to be difficult because we're out of session a great deal. I think we should be in session more, but the conventions and Mm -hmm. the elections obviously interfere. But uh, there's growing support, and that's a good sign. Uh, We're going to take another short break, and then I want to talk to you about another initiative that you're involved in right now. You've been very active over the years, and you're chairman of the Senate uh, Committee on Aging uh, on issues affecting older uh, Americans, and you've you've uh, taken a, a lead from Dr. Gawande, and you're uh, who's written a brilliant book on the subject of end of life care, and you're um, and you're working on uh, an approach to that. Talk a little about that. We had a hearing just last week 
which focused on what Dr. Gwandi calls living a good life. He says, rather than talking about a good death, let's talk about a good life for people. And this is an issue that I've been involved in for many, many years. I've been a big supporter of hospice care. And every survey shows that most Americans would rather die at home, surrounded by their family and loved ones, and yet most of them die in hospitals. Now, sometimes you need to be in a hospital and hooked up to those high-tech machines, but sometimes prolonging life and causing pain and discomfort is not the goal of individuals. Um, It is, in fact to perhaps go to palliative care rather than curative care, or both even. But right now, federal regulations make it very difficult. You have to make a choice between curative care and palliative care. Hospice is only available for those whom doctors can certify are in the last six months of life. Well, for many diseases like Alzheimer's disease, it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to know exactly what the trajectory of the disease will be. So I think we need better federal policies that respect the wishes of people for their end-of-life care. My mother uh, passed away a few years ago at the age of ninety three, and she had, um, uh, and she had um, um, congestive heart failure, and she was very, very sick and very unhappy, and really wanted to die. I mean, she she had lived a full life, and she was asking for help all the time. Of course, people couldn't give her that. Finally, one of her her hospice doctors said, well, you know, if you stop taking your heart medication, you'll probably die in four days. And she said, sign me up, and they called me, and I went and spent the last four days with her, which were maybe some of the best days we ever spent together. And uh, she died um, uh, very satisfied with the choice uh, that she had made. Uh, I know across the border from uh, uh, Caribou, they've been debating this notion of end of life and assisted suicide. Uh, where, How much latitude should people have to make those decisions? First of all, let me make clear that I know your I'm bill not is not for, assisted, so I know, right. I know, I know, and I, I am not that. for yeah, yeah. assisted right. suicide, so I want to be very clear yes. on that. But there is nothing wrong with redraw- with withdrawing extraordinary means to keep people alive. For example, um, many people have do not resuscitate orders. Um, as part of their choice when they yes. do their advanced directives. and um, but, there, but there needs to be more, is what you're saying. There needs to be greater um, you know what, consideration need, of, the, of, peop, of the experience that people have. Your mother's experience is what I would like to see more of, where the individual's wishes are respected and the family can be there and – and she can have those good final yeah, well, days. Well, I, I must say it was it was it was really a a important experience. It was great to see her. She was happy. She was exactly. happy with the decision that she made and the way she chose uh, to end 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 her life. Uh, let me end 
this discussion with a, a couple of, of quick quick ones, um, and I should have asked this earlier on, just to, to button down the Trump Trump thing. You said that you uh, respected Hillary Clinton. I assume you think she's qualified to be president. Do you feel the same way about Mr. Trump? You know, until a person's in a job or whether you know them personally and have seen them in a setting, it's difficult to make that judgment. But he certainly has shown success in the business world. Um, His focus on jobs and economic issues and trade resonate with me as they do with many of my constituents who have been harmed by trade deals that have been poorly negotiated, in my view, over several administrations. So uh, whom he chooses as his vice president to balance out some areas in foreign policy where he does not have experience will be important to my determination. And finally, on your own uh, future, you ran for governor uh, once, and there's speculation that you might come home and, and do that again. Is that something that you're considering? Well, you've certainly done your research. It amazed me Shortly after I was reelected in 2014, people started coming up to me and saying, would you consider running for governor? I had never even thought of it because I'd just been reelected to the Senate. Um, a sufficient number of people have come up to me and, and posed that question that have decided that to not rule it out. And I've learned in politics to never rule anything out because you never know what's going to happen. But right now, I'm just concentrating on being senator from Maine and doing the best job I can for my constituents. Well, we appreciate you spending time with us. Thank Thanks, you. Senator. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.